Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'll be speaking with Rachel Lowry, and we'll focus on what it takes to be an effective board member. Rachel is the Chief Conservation Officer at the World Wildlife Federation, WWF, Australia, and past president of the International Zoo Educators Association and former chair of the Centre for Sustainability Leadership. She also currently sits on the Parks Victoria Advisory Committee and the ZooWise Advisory Committee. Rachel leads a team at WWF Australia, focusing on delivering transformational conservation results that help nature and people. Rachel is also advisor to Australia's Threatened Species Commissioner and prior to joining WWF, led the development and delivery of Zoo's Victoria $30 million wildlife conservation plan, which has made a considerable impact in helping to fight the extinction of species from the world's most endangered crocodile through to Victoria's eastern barred bandicoot. Rachel has developed an award-winning program that has tackled conservation and sustainability issues both locally and globally with the Don't Palm Us Off campaign, influencing the food labelling processes of palm oil within Australia and abroad. Unsurprisingly, Rachel was awarded Sustainability Leader of the Year by WME 2010 and was profiled in Melbourne's Top 100 Most Influential People through the Age newspaper in 2011. In 2016, the Australian Geographic magazine listed Rachel among Australia's top 30 conservation heroes. In 2018, Rachel's contribution to conservation and gender equality in the workplace was recognised when she was awarded a position on the top 50 women in the Victorian Public Service by the Institute of Public Administration Australia. Rachel's current focus is to lead and support the talented conservation team at WWF Australia to drive impactful and innovative solutions that advance the health of our planet while securing a new deal for nature and people. I first met Rachel about six years ago when I was doing some due diligence about a role with the Centre for Sustainability Leadership, where she was previously chair and I'm now currently the chair. When I met her, I knew she was the sort of person I had to keep in touch with. She's wise, passionate and engaging. So I know you're going to love my conversation with Rachel today. 
Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Rachel. Thank you. Great to be on board. So, Rachel, today we're going to talk about being an effective board member. But before we explore that, I'd love to explore a little bit more about you. Tell me, what was young Rachel like? And when did you get your first inkling about where you'd end up today? Young Rachel has been a wildlife enthusiast all my life, really. My earliest memories of enjoying myself have been centred around, you know, my father's farm. I was really lucky to grow up on land and I just was always fascinated with animals. So I'm not surprised I've ended up where I've ended up, although, you know, when you're someone that loves animals and you're a kid, you're often told you're going to end up being a veterinarian. So I always thought I'd become a vet, but worked out I was going to be pretty hopeless at that because putting down animals was never going to be one of my strengths. And I discovered on my journey towards trying to become a vet, um, the world of zoology. So I think young Rachel was always very much outdoors, was always trying to find a way to help animals originally. They were my entry into nature. Um, Whereas now I suppose I make a living trying to find a way to benefit nature more broadly. But certainly not surprised I've ended where I am, given my love for animals. In terms of governance, what what was your earliest experience of governance? Well, actually, it's um, through the Centre for Sustainability Leadership, where you and I first met. That was my first entry point, because I was lucky enough to secure a nine-month fellowship with CSL, um, where I did the course. And throughout those nine months, met the incredible CSL network, you know, the people that are are giving up their time and their energy in the evenings to try to work out how we can connect through every sector of society and make sustainability a movement that's not just part of the environmental movement. So I was actually one of the few in my year that actually worked in the environmental sector. Um, You know, there were lawyers and engineers and doctors and what I loved about CSL. So at the end of um, that fellowship, I found myself feeling a bit lost. I I didn't want to go back to my silo in the environmental sector. And so I reached out to Larissa Brown at the time, who was CEO and the founder of CSL, and said, I'm missing our Tuesday night sessions and the weekend groups and um, what's your advice to me? And her advice at the time was, why don't you think about joining the board? You know, why don't you help us make CSL a bigger, better organisation. You know, I, I had experienced firsthand just the magic of the organisation, the networks that opens you up to, the thinking, the, the blinkers it takes off. And so I had a coffee with Cameron Brown at the time, um, who unfortunately has passed away and is no longer with us, but he was a critical part of establishing CSL from a, a strong governance perspective. You know, Larissa Brown was very much the passion and she had the vision and Cam came in and did a lot of work establishing the board making sure that everything was above board. And he welcomed me onto the board with open arms. And so that was my first step into the world of governance. Interesting. I mean, there's already things in there about being an effective board member, about, you know, Larissa pointing you in the right direction, Cameron then bringing you on. Can you remember your first board meeting? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I can. I remember being really impressed because what I was hoping to see from the board was not a group of environmentalists sitting around just talking enviro speak and so I I remember feeling instantly relieved because we had a lawyer on the board and we had someone who was running you know a really successful up-and-coming tech business and we had marketeer and so straight away I thought yep this is what I was after I was after meeting with a group of people with shared values who all bought into this vision that CSL is about but who are going to give me exposure to different fields because I honestly believed I'd be better even in my 
day-to-day job at the time I was working for the zoo heading up I was actually running their campaigns, their environmental campaigns, but I just knew inherently I'd be a better environmentalist and conservationist if I had exposure to people in different sectors. So straight away, I was super impressed. Cam ran a very professional show. (laughs) He had done his Australian Institute of Company Directors training. Um, He had everybody inducted on the board. They received the book of the board by David Fischel, who became a bit of a Bible for us all. And what was really fun, it was a very fun first board to sit on because what's unique about CSL is it's about trying to upskill and connect young, upcoming leaders. And so it was an interesting board because the majority of the board were quite youthful in the sense that people were all in their early 20s. They were a wise enough board, though, to recognise that the board needed to have um, you know, that sort of wisdom and experience and that sage advice that comes from people who have sat on many boards and Uh, before and so it wasn't just a young board but it was a a very fun board um, to be on so my first meeting went off with a bang I knew I was going to love it and I did. It sounds like you had a really diverse board. Yeah it was really diverse and you know I'm going to say a progressive board because they actively were wanting to make sure that it was a board that had gender equity so it was equal males and females They had done a lot of thinking to the credit again of Cam Brown he had done a skills matrix and wanted to make sure that Um, The board had the type of composition where we were really well-rounded. The first six months sitting on the board was an interesting six months because the organisation was really starting to establish its brand profile. So there was a lot of discussion around how we position ourselves in the conservation sector because we were wanting to position ourselves not just as a conservation-focused organisation but as a leadership organisation. So we needed to make sure we had a really professional tone And even though there was a group of young 20-year-olds running it, we worked really hard to make sure whenever we put anything out in the marketplace, it came across as just, you know, a well-seasoned, professional, elite sort of, we made sure everything was polished. And so there was a lot of work. It wasn't a board where you came and put in your hours and then came back again the next month. There was an enormous amount of sort of offshoot committee work. But at the time, I didn't have kids I had a lot more energy and time to give and it was probably my first ideal board when I think about it because I don't think every board member that sits on every board can offer up their Saturdays and their Sundays and their every second Thursday. You know, it's unreasonable and you've got to be very careful about how much you put on your board members. Um, But at the time, it was a good board for me because I was desperate to give more. And so, yeah, they made good use of everyone's time. It's a great point about time and commitment for boards. I think often people think that being on a board isn't quite as much work as it might be. What are the sorts of things as a board member you've been asked to do and what's your advice to others about the time commitment that's required to be on a board? Oh, look, I think it's a a really critical one and my advice to anyone looking at stepping onto boards is know what you want to get out of the experience, not just what you want to give and what they want to get from you because, and be really honest and upfront about that. There are some boards and I always ask now, I get get offered board positions from time to time where I'd straight up ask what's the time commitment because at different times of my career, I've been able to be an all-in board member where you're literally offering to run extra workshops for staff and go on field trips and help with every bit of media and every second donor meeting versus, you know, there are some boards where they require less. They might be the type of boards that have well-established staff workforce plans. They're well capacitated. They've got strong executive teams and they may be saying, no, I really want you for your experience. And outside of board meetings, there will be little else. I would suggest if 
people can't give a little bit more time outside of board meetings and you're probably not equipped maybe to to step onto a board because I'm yet to ever find an experience where uh, board members aren't needed for just a short period of time outside board meetings to help with it might be a crisis emergency you need to be able to give your executive team at least some extra time it's never going to be just a you know five to seven p.m on a Thursday night but definitely a discussion that needs to be had before you step on because you know I've seen it work well and I've seen it not work well when you don't get that balance right it's music to my ears, Rachel, to hear you say that you always ask about the time commitment required on a board because I could not agree more that people, organisations need to be clear about what sort of time commitment is required and it's always a red flag to me if an organisation says, oh, yeah, we only meet once a month, it's a couple of hours, so it's only a couple of hours time commitment that's needed when we know that being an effective board member and just discharging your legal obligations as a board director takes much more than that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, your executive team often just needs some counsel outside of board meetings. You know, you've got to get that balance right again. You don't want to be doing the job of the executive, um, but you need to make yourself available. And depending on the type of board, you know, I've only ever sat on not-for-profit boards, but not-for-profits are very donor-centric often. We rely on philanthropy and grants, etc. And so quite often those giving funding want to meet members of the board because they want to know that you've got a board that's giving good attention to due diligence. Absolutely. You just touched there on on the board and making sure that the board stays in that governance space and letting the executive run the operation. And particularly in relation to, maybe not just in relation to not-for-profits, maybe it's all boards, but I'm wondering what, what are your rule of thumb or how do you manage to ensure that the board is working in that governance space and not getting their fingers too dirty in the operation of the organisation? Well, I think this comes down to it's often the role of chair as well. The chair of the board should be making sure that there's really strong sort of terms of reference or a culture on the board where you actually have that discussion about what does the organisation need at that point in time? What type of board does this organisation need us to be? Because, you know, if, if it's a startup, if it's early in, in um, the organisation's history, then sure, they might need a bit more of a hands-on board. If you've got a new CEO, for example, or a fairly new executive, you might need a more hands-on board. But I think you need to also have a time when you say, at what point do we start to lighten that touch? Because a good board shouldn't be stepping in and micromanaging and doing the job of the executive. Um, and you need to have that fine line. So, yeah, I think it's just about having those honest discussions. It's something that a good chair should be keeping an eye on. And I've been pretty lucky. In the last decade, I've been both on boards and operating as an executive in my day-to-day, Monday-to-Friday job. And so I think that does set you up to be an effective board member because I've experienced both sides of it. I've experienced boards where the board's gotten the balance right and really given the right amount of counsel, focused on the right areas of due diligence and let their executive fly and and as a consequence you know had strong culture in the org but I've also sat on boards where we haven't gotten it quite right at that point in time and we've had to pull ourselves up and say hang on I know we're really passionate here but these are our opinions and you know our executive have the right to make evidence-based decisions and it's our job to make sure their decisions are evidence-based but it's not our job to do it for them for example but I've also been an executive where I've had board members get that balance right and it's so empowering I've had terrific board members where they're just there to give you that direction, to have that that moment of sanity check from time to time to make sure you've got your eye on the horizon. But I've, I've also had board members that have had lots of time that have 
really gotten down into the absolute minute detail of the organisation and I've spent my time where I felt like you're managing the board member rather than actually getting on with your job. So it's a really important one to get that balance right. And you mentioned in there, in fact, you've mentioned a couple of times when you were talking about CSL, the role that CAM held in really bringing that board together. And again, here, how important the role of the chair is. You were both the chair at CSL and you've also been the president of the International Zoo Educators Association. So in both of those roles, you had the opportunity to then lead the board. What's been your secret? (laughs) Taking on a chair role certainly is uh, often takes a bit more toll on your time than a, a regular board director's position. That's been my experience. And so, you know, I guess my secret is making sure that I step into roles where I'm really invested in the vision of the organisation because it's not something I can't imagine anyone being a chair if they weren't fully bought into the the vision and the mission. And so both of those organisations were a labour of love, really, and they both needed very different things from me. So CSL, at the time that I stepped into that particular role, I stepped in after CAM. It was going, going well. There was a lot of interest in the fellowship program. We had some good donors on board. We were in a growth sort of expansion phase. We were moving from Melbourne across to Sydney and running our programs. We just launched an online program. At that particular time, my key role was making sure that we built that strong cultural piece. So the vision was right, the planning was right, and it really needed some attention on the workforce planning, some support of the current CEO. Whereas when I stepped into the role of International Zoo Educators Association, it wasn't in a similar position. The membership base was declining instead of increasing. Um, we'd lost funding. Um, we were having all sorts of administrative challenges. And so I think that my role of chair was to make sure that I equipped us with a board that wasn't just offering that sage advice and keeping an eye on risk that was off that a board that had time to roll up their sleeves and really get into committees and do some hard work to turn things around. So, you know, it's my, my role of the chair there was to actually recruit good board members um, that were going to help complement the strategy that we needed to put in place. In your role in recruiting members to that board then, what were you looking for? What are the sorts of things that stood out? The IZE is an international board and so, you know, I had to have a bit of a, a skill matrix and it was a matrix because I not only needed to make sure we had all the right skill sets but on that particular board we needed to make sure we had adequate cultural representation I was very keen and I one of the first things I did when we stepped in as chair was do a members survey to work out what our members wanted from the organisation. And there was some interesting insights coming back where the richer nations, let me say, so um, some pockets of Europe, America and Australia were feeling very well serviced, but that wasn't the case for some of the less advantaged nations. So As a consequence, I wanted to make a concerted effort to have stronger voices sitting at the table, making sure we had strong representation from India, where growth across zoo education not only was needed, but there were lots of new zoos forming. I was wanting to make sure that we had really, really strong voice from South America because it was an area where in the market research showed that there was deep desire for um, capacity building across zoos and the education area there. And so I had to get to work putting out expressions of interest in the areas where, you know, I thought we were going to be able to secure strong candidates. I was very lucky that each region of the world has its own sort of zoo peak body. And so 
worked hard and fast working with those peak bodies to actually use them as a, a sounding board to make sure that we secured people that were, you know, right for the job. I was very lucky. We built a really strong board and we were able to turn things around. We ended up having record growth over the period that I was leading that board. But that was absolutely the concerted effort of making sure there were clear discussions up front. This is not an organisation you're joining that's in a growth cycle. We're currently on a downward trajectory where our job is to turn that around. So if you come to the board, we need to make sure that, you know, you're coming with the capacity to give those extra hours because the first few years was tough work. And have you come across a time where you've dealt with board members that aren't putting in that sort of time or aren't putting in the commitment that's required? Yeah, I have. And actually around that particular time in my first year, um, we've developed a a growth strategy and there was a lot of extra work for people on the board because we were needing to work hard at reaching out to zoos across our respective regions to try to secure sponsorship and increase membership, et cetera. And the numbers told a really interesting story because um, I had just this amazing recruit to the board from Latin American representative and we saw just the registration numbers go gangbusters throughout that region, whereas around the same time we had a recruit in India that the numbers we just weren't seeing the same results And we had to have some honest discussions where um, we had to work out whether or not that person really did have the capacity. And what I found was the person's daytime job had changed uh, since she'd come on board. And so she was actually quite stressed and struggling with the juggle. And um, we ended up just deciding it probably wasn't the right time and ended up recruiting a replacement as a consequence. But, you know, that's the role of the chair is to make sure you've got a representative around the table that have the capacity to actually move the organisation forward. Fantastic to hear because, again, often it is absolutely the role of the chair and the organisation as a whole to have the right people around the table. In my experience, not always the case that chairs have those difficult conversations that need to be had. What I have found, and and I've had times where that was sort of a drastic case and we ended up just deciding maybe it's just not the right time and, and it was mutual. But, you know, there have been other times where I've had people on the board perform extremely well and then all of a sudden you felt as though it was a bit lacklustre for a few months. And when you do pick up the conversation with people, quite often they're relieved. Like they say, oh, yeah, I know, Um, you know, I'm going through a tough time. Your job as a board member, whether you're chair or not, is to make sure you support your fellow peers on the board. We're not always going to be firing an all-cylinder every single month, but if you know that there is a tight time for one another, you can shoulder one another's work better. But you've got to have those discussions so that you know who needs you to step into that space for a little while and, you know, how long they're going to need that extra support for. Oh, Rachel, I could talk to you all day about this sort of stuff and may well need to get you back again another time to talk about some of the other things. But as we draw it together, I'm just wondering, what are what are the main points you want people to take away from today's conversation? You know, look, I think we've talked about some of the, the challenges of being on, on a board, you know, they're making sure you've got the right time, making sure you're supporting your peers, you're having the honest discussions, that you're getting that balance right between board and management and so on. But I also think uh, if anyone's listening to the podcast and they haven't sat on a board before and they're thinking about it, being on boards I have found can be so incredibly rewarding. And my advice would be just being really clear on what it is you want to get out of the board experience. Because my first board that I joined, I joined because I wanted to open up new doors to other sectors of society that I wasn't working within. And I was really clear of that in my mind. And so I absolutely made 
that my advantage. You know, I was giving time to an organisation I was passionate about, but I expanded my network as a consequence and I've developed some of the most brilliant friendships off the back of it. But my second board that I stepped onto, I was really wanting to develop an international perspective and learn about how we can make some inroads against, you know, the conservation education movement through, you know, different cultures, cultures that I don't work in all the, all the time. And so, you know, to do that, I had to make sure I found myself appropriate mentors because I hadn't worked in some areas. You know, working in Southeast Asia is completely different context and experience to working through Europe, for example. But because I was really clear that was my reason for joining the board, I also made sure I built my own capacity in that area and sort of reached out to mentors who I thought had done that well and, and led boards that were truly international in the way they operated. But, you know, I'm starting to think about my next step and I'm going to take my own advice. You know, I, I've done a lot of work in the last two decades in the environmental space and that's where my heart lies and where my Monday to Friday will continue to um, be. But, you know, I'm so interested in social justice issues and I've had a, a few offers to join boards recently that are in the environmental space, but I, I think I would really love to understand more the social dimensions of conservation and get more involved in, you know, I'd, I'd love to serve on a, on a board where you know, the board's helping advance missions around empowering refugees, for example, that type of thing. So my suggestion would be to people just to be really clear on why you're going on the board and make sure it works for you and the organisation. Again, fabulous advice. And I'm loving hearing that you might be looking for a board around social justice and refugees and asylum seekers and so on. I will, um, let's have a cuppa at some stage and I'll see what we can have a chat about and see what we can find because I know your contribution to any board would be amazing. Oh, thank you. And that sounds great. No, I'm definitely, um, I've got my hands full at WWF at the moment. It's an exciting time, but it's my first year at WWF. And so I'm thinking in a few months' time, once I've got the team in a position where we have a new strategic plan and I myself have developed strong relationships with my current board and it's all working well with my current CEO um, because it's a very exciting role that I'm in, uh, I'll definitely be looking for a next opportunity. So I'll count me in for that cuppa. (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, look, thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. I know that the Take On Board community are going to get so much out of this discussion. So thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me to reflect. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So thanks for being here. I would love to continue the conversation with you. Yes, you. Did you know there's a growing community in the Take On Board Facebook group? We'll be sharing even more tips and tricks, resources, events, and getting ideas for future episodes, as well as helping each other out with advice. Most weeks, there's also a special in-camera session with our guest, so you can find out even more. I would really love it if you would join in. You can find the group by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Rachel Lowry today. She is such a fantastic person. And while she really summarised some of the themes of her conversation there at the end about what's the time required, what's the support that you need to put in place, uh, what's the balance between governance and operational, what are the skills that you need to have on your board, and also touching on how incredibly rewarding it can be to be a board member. 
One of the other themes that stood out for me from my conversation with Rachel was engaging and really reaching out. So she talked about when she reached out to Larissa, who was the CEO of the Centre for Sustainability Leadership, and how that ended up in her joining the board of that organisation and eventually being the chair of that board. She talked about when she was with the Zoo Educators organisation, how she did a survey of the members to find out what their issues were and what was going on to give her a better understanding at the board and the organisation where they really needed to focus. She also talked about reaching out to board members when it looked like they might be struggling and really not being able to make the contribution that as the chair of the board she was hoping to get and how reaching out to them and having a conversation can lead to either that person potentially stepping down or that person potentially stepping up into the role but being clear about those expectations and being able to have those challenging conversations and really reaching out how that can help. And she also talked about reaching out to mentors and being able to support, find those mentors to support you in your roles on a board. None of that surprised me as I know that that's one of the things about Rachel, her incredible skills of engagement really have helped her to succeed in her roles and uh, some great advice to others that are looking at being an effective board members for their roles as well. Uh, Rachel also mentioned one of her favourite resources, The Book of the Board by David Fischel. So I'll make sure I put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. And last but not least, if you do want to hear more from Rachel, she will be speaking at one of my regular board Kickstarter breakfasts. The next one is on Tuesday, the 16th of July, 2019. So if you're listening to this episode live and in real time, that will be coming up very soon. Again, I'll make sure a link to that breakfast is in the show notes or just have a look at the Take On Board Facebook community and you'll find a link to it there. She'll be speaking with the equally fabulous Michelle Shepherd, who is the Deputy Chair of the Jane Goodall Institute of Australia, who I'll also be talking to on the Take On Board podcast coming up soon. So again, thank you for being with us today and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Take On Board and look forward to speaking to you again very soon with some other fabulous guests.